Great. Well, it, it's wonderful to learn with everyone in these uh, in these challenging times. And uh, you know, this is the first of a series of of four here and talking about different halachic issues that have come up uh, in in the wake of coronavirus, different areas. This one is is the most medical of them, and in some ways, uh, the most uh, the most difficult to grapple with. Uh, because just the, you know the the content, the material itself is is uh, is just very troubling, um, and so we're going to talk about uh, uh, something that that hospitals have been facing over the past uh, couple of weeks: the question of of triaging medical care. You know, usually we live in a world where, uh, thank God, we have such uh, you know so much so many resources devoted to healthcare and such advanced medicine that usually you know we can, certainly in America uh, the potential is there to give people. All the all the healthcare, uh, all the care that uh, that's available, and uh, you know what's so challenging is in you know the last few weeks with just the the onslaught of of the coronavirus, there's so been so many people in hospitals, especially in the New York area and and in some other areas, uh, you know in Italy and elsewhere that that the healthcare system has has to a large degree been overwhelmed, and the challenge is how best to use the the resources that the hospitals have. To, uh, to help as many people, to help save as many people as possible. Um, so, you know, this is not just a question in, in, uh, in you know, medic medicine and not just a question in ethics generally, but it's a question in halacha as well. What's, what's halacha's uh, perspective in terms of how to apportion resources? So we're gonna, we're gonna jump in, um, we're gonna jump in now to the source sheet, um, which I should have just shared the screen with all of you. Uh, you should be able to see it, and um, just uh, starting starting just with a few headlines of some of the some of the issues that uh, that have been facing. Um, you know, uh, as as recently as two days ago, uh, the New York Times ran an article about all the innovations used in place of uh, in place of ventilators. You know, turning people on their stomachs, other uh, using other machines in place of ventilators because there certainly aren't enough ventilators. Very often, uh, people with advanced cases of coronavirus. Um, you, you put them on a ventilator to help breathe for them until until they uh, clear the disease. And uh, uh, there, so not only not only have there been shortages of ventilators, but the question of who to give the ventilator to. There's also been the question of splitting ventilators uh, among multiple patients. There's been a little controversy over how well that works or not. Um, and um, now, at least in New York, it seems like uh, largely we've we've turned the corner and. There are people who are already running articles. The ventilator shortage that wasn't um, that there, you know that, uh, that certainly hospitals were tight, and there were cases of people not getting the treatment they would get under normal circumstances, and there were cases of of trying to share, and you know as we saw of uh, cases of, of using alternative therapies. Um, but it, it wasn't as bad as was feared, as was worst feared. There was a, a real worry that uh, you know, people just wouldn't get the treatment that they needed. And luckily it didn't reach, or at least at this point hasn't reached that, that and uh, partially because of flattening the curve and, and things getting better. But um, we're, going to, we're gonna consider the questions that hospitals have, have been facing. And I think you know, at least in some parts, uh, you know, some places still continue to face as to how one would apportion uh, one's, one's medical resources, not just ventilators, but other resources as well um, as well in, uh, you know, in, in these challenging times where hospitals don't have all the resources that are necessary. And we're going to, we're going to start by, by surveying some of the more classical 
treatments of this issue, let's say in the 20th century and until recently, but then we're gonna jump into the particular issues that have come up in just the last month or two um, by, by coronavirus and, and we'll consider the different, uh, the different halachic issues and the different values that come into play among the poskim. Just uh, hopefully everyone should be seeing the, the shared screen now, is that correct? It looks like it, yep. Yeah, okay, so just we'll just look up, I will pull up uh, some of the headlines that we went through before. Um, and now we'll move to some of the basic principles of medical ethics. This uh, graphic I found online has just as a picture a pictorial uh, representation of the four principles of me medical ethics in general, you know, not, not particularly in Judaism. The four principles are uh, uh, justice uh, and autonomy. We'll talk about those in a second. The two most basic ones are beneficence, to do good, to save lives, to help people, to help people uh, avoid pain and, and uh, achieve health, and non-maleficence. Uh, you know, do no harm, as it's often known. Those are maybe the two most, uh, you know, the most straightforward principles. And the question is, what we're going to face is what happens when they run up against one another in some ways, where, you know, you have, you don't have enough resources to help everyone. So you're going to do, you're going to, you're going to help one person, but it will come at the expense of someone else. You have to bet, uh, balance beneficence with non-maleficence. And in cases like that, that's where justice comes into play. Justice in the sense of distributive justice, who, uh, you know, how do you decide how to give out the various resources uh, that you have, in this case, medical resources. The principle of autonomy, which often is, is a big uh, div uh, differential uh, factor between Judaism and Western uh, medical ethics, where Western medical ethics certainly recently has a major emphasis on autonomy. Uh, Judaism, it's harder to find sources focusing on autonomy, on patients being able to say, I want this treatment and not that treatment. In this case, we're, we're less focused on individual patients just because it's, it's such a, a massive issue that the questions here are how does a hospital balance between the patients? So the autonomy of the individual patient is less of an issue here, which also means that that gap uh, that often exists between, between halacha and uh, uh, Western medical ethics systems comes up less so. With that in mind, let's just take a quick peek at, at some of the... Uh, some of the sources in, in Judaism that, that parallel these principles. Uh, the Pasuk says, source number, number one here, lo samod al damre echa, don't stand idly by the blood of your fellow. Um, that would seem to be an obligation of beneficence. One has the obligation to help others, certainly where their life is at risk, one, one must uh, do so. And then the next source, the Gemara in Sanhedrin, um, uh, talks about, also cites this Pasuk, lo samod al damre echa, and it, it brings it up, uh, it, it, right, it's, and it it, uh, it brings it up in the context of If you see your friend, your fellow, drowning in the river, or attacked by animals or bandits, you have to save them based on this pasuk. The previous page in the Gemara Sanhedrin uh, actually qualifies this a bit, and it talks about a case, uh, well, a couple of different cases, but one is a case where a mother is giving birth to a, to a baby or a new mother, and uh, and uh, there's a for, for for whatever reason there's a health uh, there's there's a health uh, difficulty, and the baby if the baby's born the mother will will bleed to death, and the choice is uh, you know there's only you can only save either the mother or the baby, and the halacha is um, prior to the baby being born that the pregnancy can be terminated or really should be terminated to save the mother's life, but in a case once the baby's head comes out. Uh, you can't harm the baby or can't kill the baby to save the mother. 
We have a principle here, and uh, this comes from noun maleficence. You can't do harm. You can't set aside or push away or really kill one life in order to save another life. That's the principle of ein dochen nefesh mipnei nefesh. Uh, and then there's a whole discussion about road day. We're not going to get into the details there, but this is a very important principle that we're going to see uh, over the course of, of this year that it's imperative to save lives, but you can't save one person's life at the expense of someone else's life. Ein dochen nefesh mipnei nefesh. And part of the logic of that uh, is ex explicated in the following source. There, there are, uh, you know, Judaism generally is a, a very big uh, supporter of, of human life, and uh, we saw this, you know, in shutting down all the shuls and all the religious, uh, all the religious institutions just uh, a month ago, um, under for the reasons of pikuach nefesh to save lives. Uh, there only are three categories of commandments that override that, um, and uh, you know, the three are avodazar kiliyaris and shvichus tamim, idolatry. Uh, sexually prohibited activities, and uh, for our purposes, murder. So you can't, or uh, you can't kill someone to save someone's life. And that source number four, the Gemara says, that's a svarahu. That's that's logic. You don't even need a proof text for that. And it gives the scenario of someone mari durai amarli zil katle leplanya veilo ketilnalach amarli liktelach lo tiptol my chazes damadidach sumotve dilna damadahu gavra sumotve. If someone puts a gun to your head and says kill someone else, you should be killed rather than killed because who's to say? That your blood is rather than, redder than the other person's. Who says you're allowed to prefer your life over that of the other individual? So that's that's a very important principle here. So there's an obligation to save beneficence. There's a prohibition against harming against killing others, even if it saves a life, non-maleficence. And the question, of course, is how these how these come together. When you have a scenario where there's limited medical resources and you can save one person, but it'll have to come at the expense of someone else. How does one balance between these scenarios? And for that, we'll jump in now to the basic, basic principles of triage in halacha. Um, maybe the, the, the clearest, and I, as far as I can tell, very often cited or paraphrased summary of this is uh, by Rabbi Avram Steinberg. Um, he's the consultant, I believe, for Shari Tzedek in Israel for their hospital. He's a medical doctor, also a very, uh, very knowledgeable Talmud Chacham. He's one of the editors in his spare time when he's not uh, working in the hospital, one of the editors of Encyclopedia Talmudit. So he has many, many writings on halacha and medicine. Here is his summary of the basic principles of triage, which we'll sort of uh, run through. So in a case where you have mispar bnei adam haskukim letipul matzil chayim, you have many people who need life-saving uh, life medical attention, they all arrive at the hospital at the same time, and you can only treat one of them. Uh, and this is a case where, of course, the means of saving belong to a third party, like a hospital. So uh, he says, if the, the, the idea, if there's one person who is sort of a better candidate, who's more likely to be saved than the other ones, the person who has the highest likelihood of being saved takes precedence. We don't follow the order in the Mishnah and Horios, which we'll see later. Therefore, he says, in a scenario where you have two people, one is healthier than the other, meaning one's chances of recovery are higher, um, then you save the person who has the higher chance of recovery, assuming the person needs treatment. And uh, actually spells this out elsewhere. There's really, you know, if you have sort of three different levels, you have people who, let's say the, the examples, uh, you know, sadly, the examples often given here are, are uh, terrorist attacks. After a terrorist attack, you have three different types of people, uh, uh, you know, who, who, who are injured. 
um, people who, you know, they sort of have a, they have a cut on their arm or whatever, they're not really in, in, uh, in danger, they're not, their life is not in danger immediately. You can treat them in an hour and they'll have the same outcome. Those people, obviously, um, those are not a priority. Uh, you have people whose situation is very, very dire, where even if you treat them, you, know, you have to, you're going to try to help them artificially breathe or restart their heart, you know, the chances of them recovering are very low. And then you have people in the middle where, let's say, they're bleeding out. They're, they're bleeding heavily. And if you stop the bleeding, if you help them, there's a good chance of survival and they need it. So that middle group is the group to focus on. That's, that's how it's often formulated. So those who need medical attention, you know, their life is really at risk, but uh, they have a high chance of, of a positive outcome. Those are the people to treat first. Um, and related to this, he writes, If you have two people, one of them, even if you, if you save their life, they won't be able, they only have a few months left to live. Let's say uh, a terminal cancer patient, you know, where um, they, they have some, uh, some immediate health challenge, but the larger health challenge is that they, they are not going to live more than a few months. In that case, you save the person who's, uh, who has a chance to live longer term. And, and uh, that's often called what he called, refers to as chaye olam You can prolong someone's life by a short period of time, or you can restore the entirety of someone's life, you know, the, for however many years that would be. So in that case, you prefer, all things being equal, you prefer a case of a chaye olam, where you can, you can make, bring someone back to health so they can live their full life rather than uh, prolong their life by a few hours or days or even uh, a few months. And uh, then finally, and this is maybe the most relevant to our case, if you have a choice between saving many and saving a few people, the kulam shavim if they're all equal medical status, obviously you prefer saving the many over saving the few. But here's where it gets complicated. Let's say you have someone who has a low chance of recovery and the doctor already started treating them. And then someone in that middle class who has much better chances of recovery shows up at the hospital and the doctor can only treat one of them. Um, and he gives parallel scenarios. You can't stop treating that first patient, even though they have a lower chance of recovery than the other one. You can't stop treating them. Even if they have higher chances, even if this person you save, you're only going to save, you know, they're only going to live for a month maximum after you save their life. It doesn't matter. Once you start treating them, you don't stop. And he gives two possible reasons. He says two different possible reasons. One is, um, I should say, he sort of, he gained his place. He earned his spot. He, he, he sort of bought his spot, as it were, in the emergency room. He needs to be treated. Once you start treating him, it's his right to be treated and to be treated fully. That's one formulation of this principle. Uh, the other formulation that by Rav Moshe Feinstein, the other formulation by Rav Nefesh. that line that we saw before, if, you are, if you're treating the patient with lower chances of recovery, and then you say, oh, we have a better candidate now who has a higher chance of recovery, we'll leave you behind, that's a case of that's like killing uh, the born baby to save the mother's life. That, and therefore, that is uh, prohibited in this case. Now, there is a minority position that argues, which we'll see later, but this is the standard view, certainly in America, also mostly in Israel. This is the standard view 
of, of how, to, uh, how to do triage in hospitals. So if people arrive simultaneously, you treat those with the best chance of recovery. Those who, when they recover, will be able to live a full life are not terminal patients, even if they recover, uh, and obviously preferring uh, to save more people over fewer. But once you start treating a particular person, you don't remove treatment. So in the case of coronavirus, what this would look like is um, uh, if you have two people who arrive at the hospital at the same time, and one of them has a 50% recovery rate if you put them on a ventilator and they need it, and the other one has a 10% recovery rate if you put them on a ventilator, you'd put the 50% recovery rate person on first and not the 10%. But if, you, if the 10% recovery rate person comes first and you put them on a ventilator, it's then, uh, it's, you then can't take them off even if the quote unquote better candidate comes along because that's ain't dochen nefesh mipnei nefesh. You can't sort of uh, you know, throw away the life of the first person uh, who came in th to the second person. So it, it's, uh, it ends up being a first come, first served system. That's the first priority under, on its understanding with the caveat that if people arrive at the same time, then you treat the better patient, uh, sort of the, the higher, the patient with the higher chances of recovery. Um, I, I included here a lot of sources that, that uh, argue for these points. We're not going to go through them in detail, but maybe we'll just skim them. Uh, this is uh, Rav Asher Weiss, uh, a current uh, posseg in Israel, um, uh, and a leading posseg. So he talks about, again, similar set of preferences. You prefer a person who will have Chaim Arukim for, versus Chayi Sha'a, a person who will live a full life rather than a person who will only live a few months. You prefer uh, someone who you prefer the person with higher chances of recovery to one who has lower chances. Um, then he talks about the Mishnah in Horios and the preferences there. We'll get to that later. And then, this is very interesting, Tzarich Iyun, the big question, Let's say you have two people, they both, um, you know, they have equal chances of recovery, and if they recover, they'll live their full lives, as far as we can tell. The only difference is one of them is 20 and the other one is 50. So one of them has the, you know, one of them is expected to live another 60 years after they recover. The other one's expected to live another 30 years after they recover just because they're older. Um, so what does he say? And this is, you know, do we discriminate based on age essentially? Um, and uh, even aside from this disease, just by nature, he's closer to his, his death by based on life expectancy. I don't know any source to determine who you should prefer in this case. I don't, you know, it's, I think if you ask someone on the street, sort of the, you know, the immediate uh, reaction would be to say, well, obviously you prefer the younger person, but um, there are some problems there that that would be a form of age discrimination potentially, um, which again, all of, all of triage is a form of discrimination. The question is, is this the type of discrimination that we want to do? Meaning, uh, you know, you'd say we discriminate in favor of patients with a higher chance of recovery. Um, most people would say all things being equal, that sounds like a reasonable discriminating factor, right? Uh, but age discrimination, that's not at all clear. So Rav Asher Weiss uh, it, it does, not, does not say uh, that you should favor the younger patient. Again, this is different than the factor of whether the person will live a full life after recovering. But if you have a terminally ill person, um, uh, that, in such a case, you would prefer the person who can live a full life, but there's no source to say that, you know, that uh, a full life of 30 years is any less valuable than a full life of 60 years. So those are his principles. And then this, this larger question someone asked, um, it's a surprising question. Can a doctor prefer one patient to another uh, because he, he was paid 
money. You go to the hospital, you say, okay, I know you're treating all these other patients, but you know, here's a hundred thousand dollars. So save, save, uh, you know, save my father. So he says to do that, for a bribe, who this is disgusting and bribes are improper and I'm surprised anyone would ever permit this. I don't understand what the question is. So that's his clear view there. Um, so th again, that's a general uh, summary of those principles with this additional one. Rav Yitzhak Zilberstein, a uh, major postic in Israel, he writes, uh, he writes uh, similarly that this focus on the general preference is if people arrive at the same times to treat the middle patient who has the best chance of recovery but needs the treatment. Um, but, uh, he, uh, uh, but that's only true if they come at the same time, not if the patient with a, le uh, a worse prognosis is there first. If you can, if uh, you by stopping treatment on one person, you can save many lives, then the principle of not passing up on, on, on mitzvot, which was his principle for not uh, stopping to treat the, 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 the patient with a, a lesser prognosis, for the one with a better prognosis, that doesn't apply here. To save many lives, you might override that principle. So we're going to see this is controversial. We'll see who who uh, who relies on that and who doesn't. Um, Rav Moshe Feinstein and Igros Moshe, and really he's he sort of sets the stage for all of these issues. Rav Moshe Feinstein, of course, the the leading postache in America, maybe in the world in the 20th century, dealt with all these new medical questions that came up as as medicine advanced. And really everyone is, is basing themselves on his work and, and developing it in various directions. So he says, he makes this simultaneous versus sequential distinction, right? If two people arrive at the same time, then you treat the one, uh, you treat, you treat the one with the better, uh, the better prognosis. But if they arrive, if the first one arrives, um, uh, you can't, uh, you can't uh, stop treating the first one. Um, yeah, so we're not gonna we're not gonna read through that just for reasons of time. And again, he also makes the the the, the chances of survival and the difference between a full life and a, a full life um, versus a uh, you know a possible life. It's not clear if the person will recover. You favor the, the person with a better prognosis. One one final point from Rav Moshe Feinstein that that's very important. Um, and uh, I'm gonna read it inside for that reason. He says, some people have raised the issue. The, the principles that Moshe set out are, you sort of figure out who has the best chance of recovery and who has a chance of recovery to live a full life rather than you know, someone who would recover but then be a terminally ill patient. So there's a worry if you make that calculation, yesh ulay lachosh sherishayim, so maybe some, use a strong language, some evil people will say that we can take into account other factors too. So maybe someone will say, okay, if we're taking into account how long you're going to live, meaning if you would live for a, less than a year, that patient is not preferred. Whereas if you live a full life, that's preferred. Maybe we should also discriminate uh, against people with disabilities. Say if someone is uh, mentally incapacitated, a shote, so maybe we shouldn't save their lives and we should save the lives of people who are uh, fully mentally healthy. Or maybe we should say that uh, someone who's in a wheelchair, who's injured and can't walk, maybe we shouldn't save their lives, we should save the lives of, of fully abled people, uh, it, oh, prefer them over that. 
And again, he uses extremely strong language here. He says, this is, thinking this way is what Rishayim do. This is what evil people think. Um, the, the, the Jewish view, the ethical view, is that you don't discriminate based on a person's quality of life. If this is their life as it was, this is, they were living a, a life of, uh, you know, with, with uh, whatever, uh, uh, you know, whatever uh, sorts of disabilities they, they had, physical or mental or otherwise. We don't discriminate. A life is a life. Um, so the only difference is on whether the person will live a full life or not, and the chances of the person recovering or not, but there's no discrimination uh, based on what the person's life looked like, um, whether they were uh, fully abled or not. So very powerful language from Rav Moshe. And so then the worry is, can you even make the calculation about whether the person will live a full life or not, a full you know, lifespan or not? And he says he's not, he's not worried that people will, will jump to make this uh, unauthorized uh, uh, form of, of distinction Whereas, uh, you know, people, people will be able to see the difference. So he, he's okay with making his distinction between whether the person will live a full life after recovering and uh, has full chances of recovery and doesn't think anyone will, will, uh, will uh, you know, discriminate against people with, uh, with various disabilities. We'll re return to this theme a bit later. All of this is sort of the normal issue of, of triage under normal circumstances where um, you know, generally hospitals have enough uh, material to have enough resources to treat everyone. And you know, there's the odd case of, uh, in Israel, you know, the, the people writing about suicide bombings, where there's a short-term uh, short lack, and, and the question is for people in the field or maybe a hospital that's immediately overwhelmed, what to do. In, in our circumstances, under coronavirus, it's under COVID-19, it's just a totally different scenario because the worry is, and again, we've mostly averted this, but not fully, the worry is that all hospitals will be basically totally overwhelmed. And there just won't be enough ventilators to provide people with the best treatment. And there's a real need to prioritize and to triage if you wanna save the most lives. Of course, if you didn't triage, well, let's take a quick look at an important article in the New England Journal of Medicine by Ezekiel, Ezekiel Emanuel, um, who I believe is an observant Jew and is also, a, uh, is also you know, one of the leading public health experts um, uh, he was under the, the uh, Obama administration. I think he's at the University of Pennsylvania now. So they, they published uh, a, a series of guidelines. This is just one chart, but it sort of gives the, some of the most important pieces here. Maybe the most important line for our purposes is first come, first served should not be used. This idea of first come, first served, you know, if you come first, you get a ventilator. If you come later, too bad. And even if you're a better candidate for a ventilator, you won't receive it. That should not be used. Instead, you, the, the idea is to maximize benefits of saving the most lives and saving the most life years, meaning reserving the ventilators for people with the best prognosis and, and uh, having the fullest uh, possible lifespan after the fact. So that's, that's uh, a very different view. That's divergent from, let's say, the classical Jewish view, which has worked very well in, you know, in certainly in Israel and in America when it's come up, has worked well with normal health circumstances, but the question is, and, and I think these guidelines have largely been followed by hospitals, if a hospital wants to follow these guidelines, does, what is Jewish laws, what is, what is halacha or Jewish ethics view of that? Is that a valid approach or not? Is there a way of squaring this more or less with halacha? Or if you don't, right, the risk, the reason why this is the, uh, this is the preferred option um, according to, to um, current medicine, largely, is that this is the way you save the most lives. If you, if you reserve the ventilators for the people who have the best outcome, you end up with the best overall results, the most lives saved, and the most life years saved. So this is, uh, some people call this utilitarian. 
uh, it's certainly focusing on the results, even though you may, it may be uncomfortable or there may be some things you don't enjoy doing when you have to turn people away, excuse me, turn people away from treatment that would be helpful for them but would be more helpful for someone else. This, this comes up in, uh, in the context of, of uh, you know, halacha has what to say in a variety of contexts. One of them is when, uh, you know, hospitals are, are, are coming up with their protocols, or, or when they did this a couple months ago, um, they'll often consult with, uh, either with, uh, with uh, you know, ethicists, including with rabbis, or maybe there are doctors on the committees who are in touch with, uh, with, with rabbis who are dealing with these things. That's one vector, one place where they, that will influence a policy. Then, of course, there are, aside from coming up with the hospital protocols, there are individual doctors um, who need to know if what they're doing in the hospital is ethically okay from a Jewish perspective, and if they, they should have any reservations about doing things. And then finally, sometimes patients um, will have preferences. Again, there's a limit to how much patient preference comes into play here, given how hospitals are overwhelmed, but they may be able to uh, invoke their religious ethical preferences. So I'm just sharing here source number 13, just a virtual conversation I had with someone um, who's, uh, you know, on an ethics committee for a large hospital system. We were in touch about various things, and, um, you know, they mentioned that people are, are uh, you know, the, the hospitals are coming up with protocols, and they want to know when they're interacting with their Jewish patients um, what, the, what the views are and what, uh, you know, in terms of uh, vent placement, do you put in the vent now or not uh, later? And we'll talk about the practicalities of that in a second. That's one, one place where, where hospitals um, would, would come in touch with, with um, uh, halacha and, and Jewish ethics on this issue. So we're going to look now at a couple of different uh, ways of, of responding, of, of applying halacha and um, Jewish medical ethics to these issues. Before we do that, if there are any questions um, anyone has, uh, please feel free to, uh, to ask and we'll, we'll talk about that and uh, um, then get back to the sources. Uh, Aviva. Uh, you might be on mute. Let's see, can I unmute you? Oh, you're off. Okay, okay. good. Yes. Hi, Rabbi. Um, I thank you for these sources. I just kind of want to be more clear in terms of what we just read. Um, because they seemed more like general guidelines of ethics and less so based on like what we were reading in the very beginning, like Talmudic texts. And I'm trying to kind of see exactly how those, these two aspects interact. Like um, Rabbi Steinberg really seemed to not be quoting any texts. And so I'm, I'm just curious like how much Jewish texts they use and what the halachic influences are. Sure. So I'll say two things. First, you're absolutely right in the sense that there aren't so many, you know, there aren't so many traditional sources, at least, you know, let's say pre 20th century sources on these issues. Um, there are some and, oh, hello. Um, there are some, but not, uh, not as many as you might see elsewhere. To be, to be fairer to the uh, Rav Steinberg Sefer, his Sefer has a bunch of footnotes, which I, of course, didn't include because it, you know, it wouldn't, uh, you know, aesthetically wouldn't work so well, it'd be confusing. But um, there are there are uh, there are some sources. Most of the sources are from you know recent years. But if you think about it, go back to the Gemara. What was the Gemara's source of the prohibition against killing someone to save your life? It's a svara, right? You don't need a source for that. It's it's logic. And similarly, if you look at a lot of the contemporary poskim, um, they'll invoke also a logic. For example, they'll say. Well, if you have two boats and one boat has 10 people and one boat has 20 people, you save the boat with the 20 people over the 10. And then it's just logical to extrapolate from that 
uh, I think what Zilberstein says, and, and say you always prefer saving more people as opposed to saving fewer people. The one source that I think is not, you know, it's not svar, is not quite logical in, in the direct sense, but I mean, it's a different, a different form of logic, is the question of, of uh, nefesh nefesh, this idea that if someone has treatment first, you can't, you can't stop the treatment. That's not, that's not immediately obvious. It's a, that's based on sources, right? That's based on, on the Mishnah about not, not killing the baby that's being born. And the, the logic and the different uh, achronim, you know, again, there's about three different theories. You sort of, you sort of uh, gain the right to treatment once you start being treated, or the person treating you, citing that Mishnah, or maybe this idea of, uh, you know, you're doing one mitzvah, you shouldn't stop doing that mitzvah. Exactly what, what the formulation is, um, it, it might differ, but those are essentially Jewish principles. From a from a ethical perspective, there's a distinction here between what 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 one might call a consequentialist or maybe even utilitarian perspectives, where you're focusing on the result. A distinction between that and uh, deontological perspectives, where you focus on duties and obligations. And in those cases, you would say the obligation to the patient in front of you uh, is such that it prevents you from doing something that would optimize your bottom line, have give you the best results, the most lives saved. So that, I would say, that's something that, that where sources are, are invoked more, whereas usually it's, it's common sense, again, often with Gemara's as parallels, but I think the main force of the argument is often, is often common sense. Uh, other, other questions? Is there any direct discussion about cases of somebody who has a, can make a major, dis do you hear me? Yes, I heard your question, and we're going to get to it. The question is someone who can make a major contribution to society versus somebody. Right. So we're going to get to that later. Uh, so hold that. Okay. Other questions, or should we go forward? Uh, we had a question actually posted from somebody on Facebook. It says, is it permitted to use financial resources or protexia to get access to a dialysis machine? So let's say for a COVID patient who needs one in a time of shortage. Hmm. So that's interesting. So all the discussion we've been having has been from the perspective of, of uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, from the perspective of the hospital, so to speak, or the overall medical system, which is a third party. In terms of preferring one's own health um, and, and, you know, acting to uh, get, uh, to obtain resources. So I think generally the, the principle we have is if you're not, if you're not directly hurting someone else, you're allowed to take action to uh, prefer um, you know, to give uh, preferential treatment to yourself. Of course, uh, in many areas of life, we do this without thinking. Uh, for example, we have private property and don't share it all equally with everyone. So the, the general view is that if you're not taking something away from someone else, you're allowed to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, give your, pursue things that will help you medically as well. The question of using protexia or whatnot, so it depends on the context. If using protexia means that you're having a doctor not tend to the patient that they should be and instead tend to you, that's not okay. If there are ventilators out there in the world that you can get access to that aren't, you know, aren't already supposed to be used by the hospitals, that might be a different story. So it would depend on the specifics in terms of whether you're, you're doing something uh, improper, but generally you're allowed to, without, if you're not harming someone else, you're allowed to prefer your own interests. Um, let's move now to some of the, the treatment uh, in, in uh, the, the current, of current issues. Rav Herschel Schechter published, uh, published a letter of halachic guidance on this issue um, uh, you know, earlier this month in three different versions. I think the final version, I tried to include the things that were added. We'll quickly run through that and I'll try to make the, this, uh, yeah, 
uh, I need to reshare the screen and I'll make the size bigger. And we'll, we'll, we'll run through that and try to, uh, try to understand the principles at work here. So he talks about, he starts in the case of the simpler case of if two Two patients arrive at the hospital at the same time, and there's only one ventilator, and you need to decide who to give it to. So, one person, it'll almost certainly help. The other person, it's, it may or may not help. You obviously prefer the person who will certainly be saved over the person who might be saved. And I think you could extrapolate that. The person who has uh, significantly higher chances over one who has lower, even if it's, let's say, 40% and 10%, which is probably more what the numbers are like, um, uh, uh, at least in, in New York. But if they come one after the other, and this is what we saw in Rav Moshe and others, and, yeah, the first one's already connected to the ventilator. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's not young, he's sick. It may or may not actually help. The younger, the next person is younger and, and more likely for the treatment to work. This is where we have the principle that we don't set aside one life for the other, and you you leave the the ventilator with the first person. So this is essentially a continuation of Rav Moshe Feinstein's psak. The problem is if you apply this principle, let's say uh, let's say all the hospitals knew that all the Orthodox Jews who came in would would uh would would not not ever be willing to be taken off a ventilator let's say you wanted to apply this principle that you never take someone off a ventilator so the logical thing for the hospital to do if they want to maximize lives saved would be to not put the person on the ventilator in the first place if they have lower chances of survival in order to save it for the next person right so say well you know we don't think ventilators are best for you we'll, we'll, and they save it for the next person so if if one takes the, the position of never taking someone off a ventilator, you, you run that, that risk or that challenge. And then the hospital might say, well, if we know that you're going to fight tooth and nail to not, never be taken off, we just won't put you on a ventilator in the first place. So what we'll see here responding to this challenge is a few ways in which uh, Rosh Hechter and his tshuva and then the, the other, uh, uh, the other uh, guidance but from Rabbi Jason Wiener um, uh, citing Israeli postgame, other uh, several ways of uh, of allowing, uh, allowing uh, for like a minimizing of this of this challenge. So um, he writes, Achain, however, im bisha When the the sick uh, elderly person, the person with low chances of of ventilator helping, comes first. If kfar yodim erosh sheva od shashtaim yavil leisacholim od cholim tziirim briim kiken karav b'chol yom. If you know, and and tragically, this has been the situation that. In just a matter of hours, you're going to have more people who will come to the hospital with better, uh, better potential results from the ventilator. Ubar maspik ventilators and there aren't enough. There's a you know there's a triage situation. That also counts as them coming simultaneously. And this is a, a you know this is a, a fairly novel psak. I think it's been cited in, in the context of Israel, but. Uh, maybe here or there, but uh, application here is is, is new. That uh, that we can say vas achas coming simultaneously. It doesn't literally mean simultaneously. It means more or less at the same time. So even though you know this this patient comes now, this the patient with a low chance of, of survival comes now, and uh, you there's no one else here now. 
but someone will come in an hour or two. That also counts as bas achas, and we can tell that first patient, I'm sorry, we actually need the ventilator for someone else, even though that someone else is not here yet. So that's a big chiddush, so to speak. That's a novel point that would that resolves some of the pressure here, um, because hospitals will want will say, okay, so we're just not going to put people. If you don't want us to take people off of ventilators, we won't put people on ventilators if uh, if they have a low chance of survival. And that way, you, you still would end up maximizing uh, maximizing the lives saved. Because again, the challenge here, and this is not obvious, right? The, the challenge here is um, is is how to how to you know optimize the results without violating dochen nefesh with nefesh, without setting aside one life in favor of another. And the view here is that. If you, someone's on a ventilator and you take them off, that's, that would be dochen nefesh with nefesh. But if they weren't on the ventilator in the first place, turning them down and saying, well, we have another candidate, even if that other candidate isn't here, that doesn't violate ein dochen nefesh with nefesh. This, uh, we'll skip the next paragraph. We'll get back to it later. Um, and the, uh, th this paragraph was added in one of the later drafts. Um, so uh, in the third version, I think. So the he notes to clarify that this preference for a younger patient over an older one, he doesn't literally mean a younger patient versus an older one. He means a patient with chances of, of a full recovery for, for a full life. So that's an important clarifying point. Um, and, and now there's a new, a new, uh, a new question here or a related question. Again, you have a scenario where someone is, uh, the elderly patient, or the, the more precisely, the patient with a less chance of recovery, is connected to the ventilator. So, but but and other people are waiting for the ventilator. They sort of need it, but you don't want to take off the the patient with a low chance of survival. So he says, uh, the the proper procedure should be you can't take him off, but you should say DNR, DNR, do not resuscitate. Don't provide any extraordinary measures. To save the person's life if they're if they're in distress because essentially because there's a need for this this uh, this ventilator for another patient so you don't as it happens I think uh, hospitals are minimizing many hospitals are doing DNR for many COVID patients because it creates all sorts of risks for the doctors but leaving that aside the factor here is we can't say dochen nefesh mitnei nefesh we can't say to take this person off but we can say passively we're just not going to resuscitate them. If they die, that is a proper practice in order to uh, possibly free up a ventilator for the next person without actively killing them. Um, and he points out, you're not killing someone. You're not actively killing someone. You're just not fulfilling the obligation to save a person's life. For that, at that, if those are the stakes, just not, not that it's murder, but you're not saving someone, it's permitted to do a DNR in order to save the next patient who needs a ventilator and has a, a high chance of recovery. And now a third factor, so again, just to review, the first factor is when people arrive at the same time, uh, favor the patient with better chances of survival, but not if, if, the, uh, if, if the person's already connected, um, even with a low chance of recovery, you can't take them off. The three factors are number one, um, you, can, you can say the, that uh, it's vas achas, that you have other candidates, even if they're not here yet, if you know they're coming, number one. Number two, that you can, uh, you can say that someone who has a low chance of recovery who already has a ventilator will be DNR. And then third, this is a, a technology we mentioned before, so using a, what's called split venting, using one ventilator for multiple patients, maybe four patients, and 
there's two questions here. We're just going to summarize outside. Two possible concerns with split venting. One is that there's a certain risk to the patient when you move them onto the split vent. And is it possible to take a risk with a patient's life in order to save their life? Uh, and the answer to that is yes. That's part of the rapo yurape. The Puzzle saying it's permitted to practice medicine. It means it's permitted to practice medicine even if you increase risks as long as you, uh, as long as your, your ultimate goal is to save them, to, to improve the chances of recovery. And then the other, uh, the other concern is that um, by split venting, you decrease the chances of survival for those being split. Meaning you have, it, it, you have better chances of survival being on a ventilator by yourself versus being on a split vent with someone else. And if let's say what you say is your policy would be um, people with a low chance of recovery, uh, we, oh, and, and also you can only be put on, a, 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 you can only be split vent after first being ventilated individually. So the hospital policy would then be, well, everyone gets put on a ventilator. If we run short, we then combine patients with lower chances of recovery onto a single ventilator and free up the, an individual ventilator for someone else. So the question is, is that the equivalent of, of taking someone off a ventilator and, and killing them? But his response is, since there still is a good chance of them recovering, um, by being split vented, that doesn't apply. That's the other concern that, that's added in, in a later version because of uh, new uh, clarifications of the medicine. Essentially though, there's, there's a, a tightrope walking going on here. On the one hand, we keep the principle that no one is ever taken off a ventilator. That Rav Moshe said, that other said, you never take someone off a ventilator, but there are some ways of mitigating the results of that in terms of if, you know, first come first serve policy straight up would mean that many, many people would lack a ventilator. So there are a few different ways of, of allowing for, for uh, freeing up ventilators, namely, number one, sometimes not pe putting people on a ventilator in the first place, because you say, no, we have other better candidates, even though they haven't shown up at the hospital yet, but we know they're coming. Number two, that you can, uh, you can say that, that uh, patients with low chances of recovery on a ventilator are DNR. And three, split venting, which lowers the chances of survival, um, but, uh, but frees up more ventilators, and that's permitted as well. Those are Rav Schechter's, uh, Rav Schechter's uh, views here. The views uh, offered in, in a uh, post by Rabbi uh, Jason Weiner, who's a, a chaplain at a hospital and he has a book on medical ethics in Halakha. Uh, so he, he gives the following set of principles, some of which, which will sound familiar, some of which are new, and we're going to look at that in detail. So we'll start with his summary. First, triage as well as possible to try to avoid need to withdraw any treatments, meaning only put people on a ventilator first if you're not going to take them off later or you're not going to want to take them off later. The goal is to save as many people as possible, prioritize patients with better overall chances of survival, and with potential to live a full lifespan um, instead of someone terminal, live less than 12 months. And uh, again, based on the discrimination points we saw before, decisions based only on clinically relevant health of patient, not their age. Right? It's not about your age, it's about your, your chances of survival, how long and uh, you know, how long you would live, et cetera. Now, um, now, if a patient would likely not survive, Right, you're on the ventilator and you have very low chances of recovery. Other patients need the room ventilator staff, right? This isn't just ventilators, it's all sorts of hospital resources. It's ideal to withdraw further interventions in order to allow them to die naturally rather than withdrawing. And this is what Rav Schechter said, the DNR. You don't take someone off, you put them on DNR. That's preferable. But number three, and this is the new piece, if there's no other choice, and it seems clear that a patient currently on a respirator will die soon anyways, withdrawal of a respirator can only be considered on a case-by-case -case basis in consultation with a POSI. So there are scenarios in which he's willing to say that you can consider withdrawing a respirator or a ventilator or whatever the case may be 
in a case, if the patient is likely to die soon anyways, they have a very low chance of recovery, and then there may be ways of removing events there. So how can this be? This goes against the motion, this goes against the standard view. How do we get here? And we're gonna now explore some of the sources on which this is based. First of all, uh, Halakha recognizes that people, even when they're close to death, uh, there's not only is it not permitted to uh, do things that would lead to their death, but that can even be murder. The goseis bidei shamayim shu chayim. Everyone agrees that if someone's a goseis bidei shamayim, that uh, is naturally, uh, you know, close to the end of, of uh, through through heaven, through you know, not through being killed by someone, but uh, through natural causes, is close to dying. If you kill that person, shu chayim. If you kill that person, you you get the death penalty for that. That's considered murder. So you can't, you certainly can't intentionally kill someone who's close to death. Um, and the Shulchan Aruch, based on Maseres Machos and the Ramam, says uh, a goseis, someone towards the end of life. You can't move them around or touch them or do various things. Kosher and Lechayev tie their tie their cheeks. Sachin also put oil on them, basically to start start the tara process early. Uh, or you can't do it, but you can't really move them around at all um, or move pillows and that sort of thing because that may lead to their death. So you're not allowed to touch them or move them around if, if that will lead to their death. Um, and uh, the Ramah spells this out. The chain asr ligram lemeis sheyamus mehera. You can't cause someone who's dying. Uh, or a goseis to die quickly. If someone is a long, long-term goseis, is you know, is uh, close to death for a long period of time, and they just can't, they're not, they're just not dying. You can't remove the pillow from under them, because that might kill them. If there's something that's somehow artificially preventing them from dying. If there's some loud banging noise, the Gemara seems to assume that loud banging noises prevent people from dying. Or has salt on his tongue, and that uh, you know that's like a stimulant or somehow keeping him alive. Um, um, these are artificially preventing the person from dying. The person by nature would be dead by now, but they have these external things keeping them alive. You can take him away from there, meaning move him away from the noise, or move, remove the salt. Uh, maybe this is referring to the salt. Remove the salt from his tongue. The aim is at Masakal. You're not performing an action. You're not moving the person. You're not shaking up the person. You're not killing him directly. You're removing a preventive uh, uh, thing, a preventive uh, item. So there's some, this, this salt is externally, artificially preventing the person from dying. By removing the salt, you're allowing them to die naturally, but you have not killed them. And this is permitted according to the Ramah. This is a scenario where someone is at the end of their life, they're in great pain, they're just not dying, so to sort of help put them out of their misery, so to speak, you don't kill them directly, that's prohibited, but you stop the external prevention of their death. The Taz and the Shah clarify that that's what he means. This view, this view, um, one might argue, uh, you can apply that here, at least if you have patients who are weak enough. And in fact, Rav Zalman Nehemiah Goldberg, in an article uh, over, 30, over 30 years ago, argues for just that. Um, I don't think we're gonna have a chance to read it, uh, well, definitely not all of it, even the selections I included here inside a funny scenario where you have, this is I think like uh, so, some uh, respirators, but on the old system, where you had one person on a respirator with very low chances of recovery and someone else you needed to put on a respirator, not for them, but I think they were brain dead and you needed their organs for a third person. So can you take person A with a low chance of recovery off a respirator in order to put person B on the respirator, 
who is also going to die, but to save their organs for person C, who could recover and live a full life, if I got the story correctly there. And he goes through this Ramah and says that the basis of this Ramah is that if you remove an external factor, that's not even considered causing them to die, right? Because he, he argues you're not allowed to cause someone to die, even if they're close to death, uh, even to save someone else's life. But if, you, if you're, but according to his understanding of the Ramah, removing an external factor is not, you're not doing anything. You're not doing anything at all. You're removing something external and they die on their own. There's no problem per se in doing that. Um, and he says in, in such a case, it's better to do it you shouldn't pull out the, the, take the person off the respirator if they're going to die immediately. Better to do it if, let's say, they need to change every so often, you need to turn it off and change the, he calls it the nylon, change the plastic. I don't know exactly what the details are. Every so often, you need to sort of cycle through. So that's a good time to take them off. If you take them off anyway, you're just not putting them back on. That's preferable. But uh, uh, essentially, he, he rules, let's quickly read the conclusion. Well, this person, who is on the ventilator, person A, has a low chance of recovery and won't live 12 months anyways, you can take off this uh, lung machine in, in any scenario, even if it sounds like, even if they'll die uh, soon, it's better to do it so they won't die immediately, but to save another person's life, you can remove the, the, the you can remove them from what's keeping them alive because it's not doing anything. It's, it's, not, it's removing an external factor. And to save another person's life, that is permitted. So this would be the basis of taking uh, people off of, of ventilators. The logic would be the same. Assuming the person currently on the ventilator has a low chance of recovery, won't live 12 months, um, taking the, them off the ventilator is an external cause. That would be the logic. Um, we're not going to read through all of Rabbi Wiener's summary here either, but he says usually extubation, so taking, someone, taking the tube out, meaning removing from a ventilator, is forbidden. There's a minority view of the Ramah that allows it because it's considered to not be actively doing anything. If there's a severe shortage and you want to save someone's life, there may be room to allow for this. And uh, the goal would be to save as many lives as possible. Um, the preference would be to withhold rather than withdraw as we saw, to not give the person a ventilator in the first place. Um, um, but if you, or to do DNR, but if you're going to do it here, do, uh, do it, but it's preferable to do it where they won't die immediately. That's, that's the, the view that uh, Ray Wiener put forward, which I think is the sort of thing uh, that would co uh, correlate better, uh, you know, would co co correlate more fully with hospital practices. One alternative view that I haven't seen people discuss much, but is on the books as New York State's, uh, you know, task force, their conclusions on how to allocate ventilators, and on this panel, interestingly enough, is Dr. Howard Zucker, not related to me, but on the news a lot, um, you know, the Commissioner of Health, I think, for New York uh, State, and Rabbi Bleich. Uh, major postache. So they have an approach where they say, first, people with a low chance of recovery, one should put them on a ventilator, but say that it's a trial of therapy. You're not putting them on a ventilator long-term, you're putting them on a ventilator for a trial period of 48 hours or 120 hours, you know, two days or five days, and then after that point, you reassess. Now, I think from a halachic perspective, it, it's not clear that this would make a difference, meaning once you put them on a ventilator, just because you say it's a trial period, doesn't necessarily change the treatment. You're still taking them off, and if you're taking them off actively, that would be the problem of nefesh potentially. Um, I wonder, I didn't see anyone discussing this uh, in, in, a, in, a, in the article, or, or, or but uh, what if you put someone on a timer? This is sort of a very Hilkel Shabbos solution, and I don't see any hospital adopting it, but in theory, if you put someone on a timer, you put a, you know, a 48-hour timer on the ventilator, um, 
So would that help? Again, according to Rezavon and Chamiyah, that helps to some degree. He, he prefers scenario where you're not actively taking it off, where you it was, had to turn off anyway. I don't see that solving the endokin nefesh with the nefesh problem. It's still, you're still making a, you know, by when you put it on, you're putting, you're only giving them partial treatment. It's not at all clear that that would be a good solution. Um, we are running out of time, but maybe very, very quickly, the Mishnah in Horios uh, talks about uh, how there's a whole list of preferring, uh, in terms of saving lives, a man to a woman, a coin to a levy, a levy to Yisrael, etc. all these different groups. And then the Gemara says that doesn't really apply so much. And that's only if they're all equal. But, but the real factor that makes a difference is a person's Torah knowledge. Right? That's really in the Mishnah already. Um, you prefer the greatest Torah scholar uh, in such a case. And there's a couple of different reasons for it. The general approach is that it's based on who's the most helpful for the community, but with a certain focus on Torah study. This, in theory, this source should determine our whole discussion. It sounds like it's the most relevant source, but Rav Moshe Feinstein, uh, long ago, well, not long ago, uh, decades ago, said um, that, uh, you know, really the most important thing is the health factors. Maybe as a tiebreaker, if people are exactly even, you can consider these factors, but it doesn't come into play. One thing that some people apply, and this was, uh, this was uh, Bina's question, that um, what, if, what if you can save someone who's needed by the community? And maybe that's, you know, like, like we saw in the Mission Horios, maybe that's considered like many. Maybe saving a doctor who can cure cancer is the equivalent of saving a thousand people. Or maybe saving a, a community leader, a politician, you know, uh, who's, who's actively involved in fighting the disease or whatever scenario you want, or a religious leader. Um, maybe you can say that that counts as saving many lives. That somehow is given greater weight. So um, Rav Zilberstein apparently suggests this. Uh, Rav Usher Weiss, this is in the notes in Rav Wiener's article, Rav Usher Weiss, doesn't think that that's a priority. It's too hard to determine. Generally, I've never, I've never seen this factor applied. Even Rav Schechter, Rav Schechter in his article um, seemed to, uh, you know, to, to give some room for people to leave some room for people who are communal leaders. But uh, it, it, it's not, it's not too, uh, it's not applied too often practically. The the factors in the mission in Horio seem to be superseded by medical uh, classifications generally, and maybe it remains as a tiebreaker. One final thought, because we're out of time. I find it fascinating to do a comparative analysis between the orthodox and conservative uh, uh, protocols that have been written. Fascinating because usually you assume, okay, you know, uh, you know, the orthodox will take this position, the conservative will take that position. They'll, you know, there'll be some sort of a range, but you'll be able to plot them out on, you know, on a straight line. As it happens, the if if um, Rav Schechter, if Rav Schechter and Roy Wiener's views are somewhere in the middle, the two conservative protocols released by the rabbinical assembly are on both extremes, on the two extremes. Um, uh, Rabbi Elliot Dorf argues that really you should, you know, there's no difference between putting on, uh, between not giving uh, a ventilator and taking off a, resp a, a ventilator. And he says, this differs from authorities in the Orthodox world, but he basically rejects the concept of distinguishing putting on and taking off. This is a major philosophical question of doing versus doing harm versus allowing harm. Is there a difference or not? So it's, I assume he has some conclusion. I didn't look at his article that he cites. But I assume his conclusion is that there's no essential difference. At the end of the day, you're leading to the same results. And therefore, he says, you can take people off a ventilator. You don't need to, you don't need to ask all the questions like Roy Wiener was saying. So he's all the way on the side of, essentially, follow the hospital protocols. Uh, if you need to take people off a ventilator, you can do that. No questions asked. Of course, he has many other details. But for our purposes, that's his view. All right, Daniel Nevins 
uh, has the view, he really takes issue with essentially what the standard protocol in hospitals is from, from Dr. Emanuel's protocol. And he says, this is against the traditional Jewish view of Rav Moshe Feinstein and others that you don't take someone off a ventilator. You ain dochin nefesh mifnei nefesh. You leave the person on, on the ventilator. You can't take someone off. And to say, I prefer you over you, that's just not a proper, uh, not a proper Jewish view. So he's on the opposite extreme. He's, he's uh, uh, agreeing with Rav Moshe Feinstein's view and not updating it, not changing it, not shifting it uh, in light of the new circumstances. So I have, I have a bit of a theory as to what's going on here, you know, because usually you'd think there, you know, there'd be some sort of alignment uh, in a different way, uh, not necessarily that the two extremes are, are uh, two rabbis in the conservative movement and the sort of two centrist views are in orthodoxy. Um, so I think there's two different factors uh, that are here. There's, there, and, and this ties into the different ways that people would be asked these questions. But one fact that, that these questions would come up, one factor is accommodating hospitals, meaning trying to fit what hospitals are doing with halacha as much as is justified. So you don't, what you don't want, if a doctor comes to you and says, the hospital wants me to take someone off a ventilator, is this permitted? So if you say this is prohibited, you must uh, decline to do that. Or, or, you know, and if you get fired, well, you can't murder someone to save your job. So, you, so there's, a, there's a great interest in having hospital protocols align with halacha, or at least something within the range of halacha. That's one factor. The other factor on the other side is, of course, Jewish values. And, uh, you, you know, obviously, we're, you know, no one would want to compromise halacha's uh, integrity or halacha's beliefs or what halacha considers to be murder just because something's practical. And that, of course, is the idea of ein dochen nefesh nefesh, that there are some cases where there's a principle that um, something is deontologically prohibited. Something is just, you have a duty to this person, to this patient in front of you who's on the ventilator. You can't just take him off and kill them. That would be against Jewish ethics. And... I think especially, especially now, and this gets into the questions of discrimination, which as we saw, Moshe Feinstein was very opposed to, use, to applying discrimination against people with, uh, with various disabilities. Um, so I think if you read Brian Nevins' uh, article closely, he says he's very worried about that. He's, he's very concerned that as soon as you say you're going to prefer one person to another, instead of adopting a first-come, first-serve policy, you're going to end up uh, exacerbating these inequalities and these uh, these, uh, dis, you know, the, this discriminatory impulse that we have, even when it's not medically justified. And for that reason, he's, he's uh, very opposed to taking the person off, uh, off the ventilator, and he takes the opposite extreme. So I'd say the, you know, the, the two conservative tubos re represent the two values in, in purer form. Um, or right, Dorf saying we want to accommodate, we want to be on board with the hospitals as much as possible and, and, and uh, you know, figure out how to make that work. Whereas Ryan Nevins is saying, um, our goal is to make sure that, that the Jewish values are maintained. It's maybe less pragmatic, less practical, but how can you take someone off a ventilator ever? And the two orthodox, uh, uh, you know, recently published protocols we saw are somewhere in the middle, saying, well, on the one hand, we believe you can't do, you can't just take someone off a ventilator like that. On the other hand, we're trying to save as many lives as possible. And we're trying to, 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 to work with hospitals. The hospitals have the goal of saving as many lives. We're trying to work with them as well, and there's two the two different degrees of how much how much give uh, to have. You know, Rav Schechter giving a few different methods, either saying that bas acha starts earlier, or saying you put a DNR, or allowing split venting. The right Wiener saying based on Roshon uh, based on Rav Goldberg and others, maybe there are some cases where you can take someone off with great care. Uh, it, it, you know, in certain precise scenarios, but that's the goal. Those are, that's the goal to balance between these 
two competing factors trying to optimize halacha's response to these challenging circumstances. And we're over an hour. I'm happy to take questions now. Um, and uh, uh, it's been wonderful learning with, uh, with you all. I think there were a couple hands that, that went up over the last uh, few minutes. Okay, if not, um, you know, everyone should feel free to reach, uh, to reach, me, uh, reach out to me if, if there are any further questions. Um, and it's been wonderful learning with you today and uh, look forward to learning with uh, whoever is interested in the next three weeks.